0: Turn your Bible to the Gospel of Luke as we continue a sermon series from the Luke and Gospel. We'll be in chapter 18 today. No relative righteousness. No relative righteousness. Many years ago, there was a Fortune 500 CEO. He pulled into a service station and He went inside to pay. When he came back, he noticed his wife was having a very intense, very in-depth conversation with the service station attendant. He later learned it just turned out that, well, before she married her eventual husband, that she'd actually dated the guy who was the service station attendant there. CEO got into his car and they both drove off in silence and Well, the Fortune 500 CEO was feeling pretty good about himself when he learned that his wife's former date was the the hand at the filling station, and so finally he broke the silence. He said, I know, I know what you're thinking, dear. I bet you're thinking how glad you are that you married me, a Fortune 500 CEO, instead of that guy who's a service station attendant. Well, I said, no, no, I wasn't thinking that at all. I was thinking that if I had married him, he would be a Fortune 500 CEO and you would be a service station attendant. That's what I was thinking. We look at three words today to learn a lesson from our Lord from the gospel of Luke. The first word is pride, pride. Kim Hubbard once said, there is no secret about success. Have you ever met a successful man who didn't tell you about it? There's no secret to success because there's so much pride. Well, look at verses 9 through 12. And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others With contempt. Two men went up the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this this tax gatherer. I fast twice weekly, I pay tithes of all that I give. Well, the part of the funeral where the, the pastor says kind words about you is called a eulogy. Baptists don't use that word a lot, but it's, that's the part, the personal part of a funeral. It is from classic Greek. It is good words. It's when someone shares good words about you. Or well, this Pharisee does a self-eulogy. He walks into church, and he says all the good words about himself. My grandmother would have said in the sounds of the South, the boy was tooting his own horn. He walked into church telling everybody just how great he was. He himself was. Did you notice all the references to self in this prayer? Look at verse 11. The Pharisee stood praying to himself. Now, to himself? Wait a minute. I thought the whole idea of prayer was that one would talk to God. How is it that he's praying to himself? It's really not a bad description of this prayer. It never made it to God, in fact. But the because the Pharisee had a self-proclaimed goodness. It was a, a prayer in reality to himself. And not in any way a prayer to heaven. So we start with the word himself. And then notice, I thank God. I am not like. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I give. Notice. Notice. He doesn't ask God for anything in this prayer. He doesn't need to petition God for anything because he doesn't even need God. He's so good in himself that he has become godless. Look at verse 9. Jesus tells this parable to the ones who trusted in themselves. Jesus is saying to those who think that their own goodness is enough for their righteousness. Jesus aims a story at those who think that, well, they they trust in themselves for their own salvation. Well, this Pharisee is a perfect paradigm for one who trusts in himself. It's really, in many ways, a distorted psalm of thanksgiving. I thank you, God, that I'm so great. He made himself both the subject and the recipient of his prayer. God is left out from beginning to end the experience of this Pharisee. In this prayer, he reports to God all the good things that he's done. He's on the Lord's side. He's not like the others who dishonor the Lord by violating the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers. Notice his contempt in verse 11. I'm glad I'm even not like this tax gatherer over here. I'm glad I'm not like him. God, I'm glad I'm the perfect man you've made me to be. In fact, in case God might miss something, he gives God his resume, his spiritual accomplishments, his accolades. God, let's start. First of all, I fast twice a week. Well, Leviticus tells us, Leviticus 16, Leviticus 31, Leviticus 29, Numbers 29, that really one was only required to fast as a Jew on the Day of Atonement. But this Pharisee goes way beyond Was enjoined in Scripture by fasting, not on the Day of Atonement, but rather twice a week. Jewish piety had become proverbially famous in the Greco-woman world. In fact, so much so that Suetonius makes a reference in antiquity that not even the Jews fast so scrupulously. Unlike this Pharisee, Jesus and his disciples were not known for fasting. They were known for feasting. And they were known for feasting with the down and out, with the folks who come from the other side of the tracks. They were eating with tax gatherers and those of ill repute. That's the reputation that Jesus had. And just to make sure, that all the goods that came into his hands had been properly tithed upon. He tithed his tenth, then he paid an extra tenth in case the producer had not tithed it on the way through the process. Well, that way he made sure, fasting doubly and tithing doubly, sounds like a great guy to me, actually, tithing doubly, (laughs) that he was making sure he was covered. Now, Jesus is not against the fasting. Jesus is not against the tithing. Jesus is against the pride. You know, we are self-centered by nature, aren't we? Humility is a very, very unnatural trait. Pride actually comes with ease. Here's how we gain our pride. We compare ourselves to our neighbors giving ourselves in the judgment process the benefit of every doubt, being harsh on our neighbors and our judgment against them. We stand like this pious, prideful Pharisee and proclaim that, well, God, at least, I'm not as bad as the next guy. I thank God, we say secretly, I'm not like you. I'm not like the dude that's a drunkard. I'm not like the gal who's full of greed. Lord, any way you slice it, I tithe, I'm faithful to my family. I don't abuse my children. Well, God, come to think of it, have you noticed? I'm just a cut above my neighbor. By comparing ourselves to our negligent neighbor and not to God's righteous requirements. We feel better about ourselves than actually we ought to. Have you ever found yourself saying out loud in your mind, well, at least I don't, and then finish the sentence? If you've ever said, well, at least I don't, which is a reference to someone else's behavior, then you're the character of the Pharisee. Yeah, I may do this, but I can tell you this, at least I don't. And point out someone else's sinful behavior. We've all succumbed to the temptation to lift ourselves up by tearing someone else down. God, have you noticed? At least I don't. I'm better than the next guy. You see, the mistake is we're comparing ourselves to our neighbor rather than God's righteous requirements. Therefore, we feel better about ourselves than we really ought to. God is only going to compare you to one person, and that's his sinless son, and you will not measure up to the Messiah. God is only going to compare you to one person, and that is his sinless son, and you and I cannot measure up to the standards of the Messiah. God, the bad news is, is never graded by a curve. I've experienced this. Maybe you have. You have a college kid who makes a call and says, Dad, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Okay, what's the bad news? I made a 60 on my chemistry exam. Yeah, that is some bad news. I'm writing the tuition checks. You're making the 60 on the chemistry exam. Okay, I'm ready now. Go ahead. What's the good news? Well, the highest grade was a a 65. So when they put the curve, then I'm going to have an A. Well, that's a true story, and that does happen in a lot of colleges. The top grade will be a 60 or a 70, and then they have to apply the curve. But God never applies the curve. God only judges by his righteous word. God compares us to the sinless Christ. Christ is the one who blows the curve for the rest of the class. By comparing ourselves to our low standards of our neighbors, we're like the little child who goes and proclaims to his mother, mom, guess what, I'm seven feet tall. She said, well, how do you figure you're seven feet tall? And he took her into his bedroom, and he'd made on his wall a measuring instrument, and he had seven marks, and he stood up, and he counted seven marks, and he said, see there, I'm seven feet tall. The problem was his marks were not 12 inches apart. They were about five inches apart, and by his homemade measure, the little boy could proclaim with pride I'm seven feet tall. It was a skewed standard of measure. And when you measure yourself, like this Pharisee, to me or to any other of your sinful neighbors, then you have missed the mark. Each one of us thinks we're better than our neighbor. Each one of us in this room, at some point, thinks we're better than the average guy. Studies show that 9 in 10 managers think they are better than the average manager. That can't statistically be true. 9 out of 10 can't be better than average. You see the problem, or there is no average. 9 out of 10 college professors think they're better than the average college professor. That can't be. Nobody's average then, right? In fact, I found a psychiatrist who said that those who, even those who've been hospitalized in motor vehicle accident, professional psychology David Myers says that most all of us who drive a vehicle think that we are better than the rest of the drivers on the road. You ever ride with somebody who's pointing out all the mistakes of every other driver on the road? Well, that can't be, we can't all be better than average drivers. Yes, said the psychiatrist, it didn't matter about our age, gender, religion, or economic status, or ethnic background. Deep down inside, we all think that we are just a cut above our neighbor. The way it happens is like this. We judge ourselves based upon the intent of our heart. So when we cut corners, we know what we ourselves meant by our action, and so we filter our judgment, not just on our behavior, but upon our heart. Not just our hands, but our heart. But when I look at you or I look at a neighbor, then I judge you simply by the facts. We judge harshly and censoriously and critically, denying our neighbor of the benefit of the doubt that we gave ourselves. We hold our neighbor up to the perfect standard of measure the one we could never attain. And therefore, we begin to feel pretty good about ourselves. And we start to brag about all we've done and all we've accomplished. An elderly minister who survived the Johnstown Flood of 1889, go look up that sometime, it was a terrible flood, Johnstown Flood of 1889, he was used to regaling audience with the harrowing events that he survived in that enormous flood. He got up to heaven and the saints were talking about their lives below. And he called St. Peter aside and said, Do you mind if I share about the Johnstown flood and how I survived it? I think they'd like to hear that. And St. Peter said, You go ahead, but you just remember, oh, Noah's going to be in the audience. <laughs> to whom do you want? compare yourself. There's something fleshly in our nature that wants us to talk about how big, tall, great, smart, wealthy, fast, wise we are, how great our children are, and my goodness, don't get some of you started on your grandchildren. In fact, we might even be proud about how humble we are. Ted Turner, CNN founder and former Atlanta Braves owner once said, If only I had a little humility, then I would be perfect. There's a second word humility. Look at verse 13. But the tax gatherer. In each of these parables, when Jesus turns the corner and gets to the good side, we start with the adversive conjunction, but. Have you noticed that? But. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, don't imagine for a moment that this was a private entrance into the sanctuary. No, a Jewish hearer of this parable would assume that it was one of the public times of prayer, either nine in the morning or three in the afternoon. And so, while well, the Pharisee goes in and the publican, the tax gatherer, they go in during a normal public time of prayer, like what we've gathered this morning. And gathering into this proud and pious room comes the tax gatherer. He becomes part of that class of that notorious sinners who've taken the side, not of Israel, but they've taken the side of the occupational government of Rome. He's gathering taxes for the enemy. No one likes him. Notice he stands at a distance from the gathered crowd because he doesn't even think that he's worthy to be standing among God's people. Maybe he had read Psalm 24. He has neither clean hands nor a pure heart. He's not to come to the holy hill of God. He's spiritually far away and painfully aware of his distance from God, and so he keeps a distance from the altar as he enters the room. And notice, he doesn't even look up. Scripture tells us that normally one would lift one's eyes to heaven to pray. Psalm 123, Mark 6, John 11, John 17. But he doesn't lift his eyes to pray. He's so low on himself, he stares at the ground. And notice next, he beats his breasts. Now, this was a sign of absolute extreme sorrow. It normally occurred only amongst women at funerals. In fact, interestingly, in this same gospel, in Luke 23, 27, is the other occurrence of this phrase. And guess what happens? When Jesus is going to the cross, the women who loved his ministry beat their chests and wail. This man is sorrowful, as sorrowful as the women at the crucifixion of the Christ. He calls upon God, just have mercy on me. God, make provision for me. I will never get to your kingdom alone. Now, humility is an odd thing. The minute you talk about it, it sort of disappears, doesn't it? If we even ask the question, am I humble, It's not to be so. Examining our own hearts even for pride often leads to being proud about the diligence of our circumspection. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking about yourself less often. You see the difference? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather is thinking about yourself less often don't worry about yourself. Don't notice yourself. Don't even criticize yourself. Don't talk about yourself. Don't notice how others are treating you. You find you're saying, I can't believe they didn't invite me. I can't believe they didn't ask me. I can't believe he didn't speak to me. That's pride. You're thinking about how others have treated you. C.S. Lewis says, humility is thinking less often about self. Christianity is not moralism, it's grace. People will reject the moralism of the Pharisee. People never reject grace. If they understand it, they don't. Grace is a gift from God to sinners. Well, that's our third word, grace. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, now tell you, this man went down to his house justified. The tax gatherer goes justified. Rather than the Pharisee, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Now look at verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you. When Jesus says, I tell you, Do you notice what's happening? He's speaking for God. How can he tell us who's justified unless he himself has the power to justify? He's claiming to have God's prerogative. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you who makes it into the kingdom. Acting like God, he calls a judgment. I can tell you who's God going to accept. It's not the one you think. It's not the Pharisee. They were popular. It's the despised tax gatherer. And I like the way Jesus says it. I tell you, this man. Look back up at the end of verse 11. The Pharisee says, I'm not like this tax gatherer. Jesus picks up on that designation and says, it is this man who is justified, playing on the words of the Pharisee himself. In Philippians, Paul tells us, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. But with all humility, let each one of us regard others as better than ourselves. And don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, had the attitude that Christ had. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to hold on to, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. He found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Grace is a hard concept that a murderer can have a seat in heaven at the table the banquet of God while a liar is left out because neither are good enough by themselves to get into the kingdom but the murderer who repents and trusts on Christ is the one who receives grace. How'd you enter this morning? Did you come like the Pharisee, feeling pretty good about yourself? Did you come like, notice the direct article, did you come like the sinner? In fact, when the public of prayer, Perry said, I am the sinner in the room. Did you come like the Pharisee, or did you come like the sinner? Do you come realizing that the only hope that you have is the crucifixion of the Christ and his glorious resurrection? And the good news is that the one who is justified is the one who comes and says, I have no goodness in myself, but rather filthy sinner that I am with out of pure heart and with no holy hands. I've come to the holy hill and is here to ask God to have mercy on me. Did you come seeking God's mercy? If you did, you'll receive it. Did you come proud of who you already are in yourself? Then you'll be turned away empty-handed. Maybe you're here this morning and this is your morning to come as a sinner needing the grace of God. Maybe it's your morning right there in your own living room to say, God, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I come realizing I I neither have a pure heart nor holy hands, and I trust the crucifixion of the Christ to be my death, that his glorious resurrection could be my resurrection too. Pride, humility, and grace first two will never go together. Pride and humility will never go together. Pride and grace will never go together. But humility and grace are the partners of salvation. Let us pray. Maybe right where you are this morning, you'd pray in your own heart. Oh, God, I'm a sinner. Just pray it in your own heart right there. God, I I need a Savior. I'll never make it your kingdom based on my own behavior. But I'll make it there by the obedience of your Jesus, who died on the cross to take away my sins. I call him this morning, my Lord. I call him my Savior. I invite him into my heart to rule and reign in my life as he rules and reigns in the cosmos. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.